my name is Simi Jake Patoko. My pronouns are they, them. And my name is Hannah Crawford, and my pronouns are she, her. And we are... The Dreaming Divas. We are a podcast inspired by the Screaming Divas. And our goal is to create a similar platform, but from the perspective of young singers. Today, we had the pleasure of chatting with Taya Kasahara, soprano, interdisciplinary artist, and co-founder of Amplified Opera. We had some really good discussions about developing your own opera company, outreach through their 19 videos for COVID-19, which you may have seen on YouTube, and trans and non-binary identity within opera. Before we get into the interview, we would like to graciously acknowledge that together we reside, learn, and create on the land of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, Mississauga, Wendaki, Neonwensio, and neutral people. We seek re-indigenization. We stand with the Indigenous community and welcome Indigenous voices on this platform. We are grateful to be working and learning on and about this land. We honor these communities as traditional stewards of these lands. We really hope you enjoy this interview. It was a spectacular one. Check it out. Ding! Ding! <laughs> well, Taya, thank you so much for joining us um, for this podcast. We've been so excited about this for so long because you have a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> no pressure. Thanks for yeah, no pressure. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, I will share as much as I can. I'm not sure if it's a wealth, but it's it's a little it's a little bag maybe <laughs> of knowledge. <laughs> I, I have been fan personing over you for literally so many years, and Hannah has just been subject to me like yep. giving all the love. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. We're very excited. I'm happy. Awesome. Um, did you want to start off with your land acknowledgement? Yes. So I'm here in Toronto. That's the Mohawk word for where the trees are standing in the water. And I'm really lucky that I get to li also live like so close by to the water too and, and see it on uh, stormy days and sunny days and windy days. Um, yeah, and this is the land of the traditional caretakers of the Haudenosaunee, the Chippewa, the Wendat peoples, the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, and it's been home to, it is home now to many diverse First Nations and Métis and Inuit people, as well as settlers of many generations, uh, immigrants, newcomers, and I'm one of those settlers as well. Uh, my parents uh, both immigrated, one from Japan, one from Germany, and I've also had the pleasure to grow up in, um, in Stalo and Matsqui lands, which is close to Coast Salish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish lands. And I also went to university there at UBC. So my heart is definitely like in the West Coast with the mountains and the ocean. So um, it's always just uh, really healing to be connected to water and to trees and to mountains. And so um, I feel lucky that I could live in Toronto and be close to water and be with these trees that are that were historically standing here, you know, with the Toronto Island and Leslie Spit and all of that. So that's where, yeah, that's where I'm at today. Well, thank you. Well, we like to, I'm assuming this is next to me. I'm bad at the order. That's my thing. I'm like, I'm gonna get into everything immediately. Anyway, um, we like to do a little bit of a 60 second life story. Feel free to leave in all the good parts. And I'll have my little timer 
all here for you. Ooh, okay. We're going to have a timer. I love this. <laughs> and so when you're ready, I will press start. You go ahead. Okay, let's do it. Hi, my name is Taya. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a Nikkei Canadian settler, trans, non-binary, queer, interdisciplinary artist. Um, my training is in opera. So I'm an opera singer that sings a lot of canonical repertoire, but I love to work on new uh, new shows as well. I'm in the last five years, I'm a theater maker. So I've been doing, uh, making new shows and working with people in a very collaborative way. I'm also a co-founder of Amplified Opera uh, with three others, Arya Umazawa, Asata Tenekun and Marian Newman. And we are making shows and creating space for equity seeking folks. Uh, and we're also the disruptors in residence right now at the Canadian Opera Company. Uh, what else can I say? I have a wife, a beautiful wife, and we have two cats, Moira Rose and Stevie Bud, and um, they were born male, but, you know, we use all pronouns in this house. And so that's about it. I've got five seconds left. I live in Toronto. Uh, BC's my home, though. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good one. I'm sorry, Moira Rose? Yes, Moira that's Rose. So funny. And oh, my God. So sassy as well. Like, yeah. He, he definitely lives up to his namesake. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, if we could jump right in. Uh, one thing that caught my attention during the pandemic at the almost the very beginning was yep. you released 19 videos for COVID-19 and you kind of got the title of Balcony Soprano. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you started doing that and what effect it had? Totally. I think it was just such a scary, chaotic time in March 2020. So many things were canceling. It was like a domino effect. Like I got one phone call, then another email, then three phone calls, then five emails, you know, in succession um, during that, that weekend that everything kind of shut down. And it's so funny, we're actually leading up to that anniversary again uh, next weekend. So that's odd uh, to be producing a, a live concert series only two years later. But anyway, um, I was getting actually the inspiration from the Italian folks that were singing on their balconies, you know, just it, Italy is has such a rich musical history. And then I started hearing some opera and see some Neapolitan songs. And I was like, hey, I can do that. I, I do do that. I'm an opera singer. So I figured why not do something here? And it was kind of like a little bit of an experiment. And I just posted on my blog on my website like I'm gonna do this and I started on March 19th so kind of like riffing off of that that 19 number so it's an interesting number for sure um and it I was received with like a really great kind of response from like folks just like walking their dogs on the street or just driving by or people on their balconies like would come out and actually um, open their windows and they loved it so they wanted an encore right away so I just did it again and then I was like, okay, well, that was a thing and posted it online. And then that reached so many more people, like not only like people I kind of knew um, through Facebook, I was posting on Facebook, YouTube, but just so many more people that were um, scared and didn't know what was going to happen with this uh, pandemic that was hitting the world. And I think it, it uh, was a place for people just to kind of find some comfort and some songs in a in a way that it was so human like me just going out in my regular clothing you know 
with a toque on or something or a big jacket because it was kind of cold some of those days and to be able to connect and to look into people's eyes and that was really special um yeah so it it was it was just um really what fueled me i think to keep going was was the immediate response of like my neighbors in this condo development area but also the response i was getting online even like from people from south africa and brazil and the uk and and stuff like that and so yeah i decided to do to do the full 19 videos i know for myself like that was right when school like basically just got canceled for the rest of the year it, i guess that would have been my third year of university that's really weird to think about anyways <laughs> um and I remember seeing some of your I don't think I saw it until maybe the third or fourth one that came out and I was like this is literally my holy grail at the moment because everything felt like it was so scary and your whole identity as a singer I'm sure you know this well was just like cool I have no work I have no school I have virtually nothing now Mm -hmm. And I know thousands felt the same way. So it was very comforting for me. I know that for sure. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And I think um, one that stuck out for me was Nessun Dorma. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, first of all, that song itself, like, that aria is just so gorgeous. And it makes me cry every time. I've heard it, like, hundreds of times at this point. But I think hearing... Um, First of all, a soprano do it. That's like not something you hear every day, but hearing it sh shared live with people and and having that outreach, like what you were talking about, you were reaching so many people online and in person too, mm -hmm. is so important because we talk about outreach all the time in this field, but then when everything in the field goes quiet, there's still these opportunities. And I love how you, you were inspired by the Italian videos and all that stuff to find a way to still reach out to these people who wouldn't probably normally get to experience that kind of thing. And I think it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, totally. Like, I think I would say like 95% of the people that were experiencing it had probably had never seen opera before, <laughs> you yeah. know? So that was fun to kind of uh, give them something new, like a new experience. Absolutely. Did any neighbors ever complain? Uh... We don't have to keep this in, but I'm actually curious. No, totally. You know who complained where it was actually the condo board, the person like across, because I'm in an arts co-op that's okay. housed in a condo building. And all these condo buildings are like, you know, they're new developments, they're stacked side by side. So I got this weird email, a Facebook message actually from the head of the condo board over, over like across the, the window, across the street here. Yeah. Um, because I had been doing it consistently, like every single day, and I was planning to do it like every day, like, you know, 19 days in a row, starting on the 19th. But because of that, and I was also sharing to um, my, my fellow um, co-op mates, you know, in the arts co-op, that I'm going to be doing it probably around six, see you then. Um, it was starting to attract a crowd. And people oh. were gathering on the streets and they weren't social distancing or physical distancing as much. And I think because no one was vaccinated, there was so much fear in, in the beginning of COVID. This person was really concerned about that. So I said, OK, you know what? I'm going to randomize the days. I'm not going to announce and it will just be, 
you know, if someone happens to fall upon, like fall upon the concert, they will. And oh, yeah. I always sing the song twice. So hopefully if people start to hear it through their window or something, you know, they could open the, they could come out onto the balcony and also hear it as well. So that's what I did. I think that was the complaint. And then um, that was the only complaint that I faced personally. And someone sent me a blog post, actually, I think it was maybe from blog TO about the event and on yes. there, so many trolls just going on and on and on about like, oh, isn't it nice that you can sing opera in your fancy condo and, or something like that, or like, why you make, make, yeah, or making such a racket or because other folks started to play, you know, just music on their boom boxes and like opening the windows, like as spring was coming, you know, April, like warmer weather. And people were complaining about that. And mm -hmm. so it was very much like a, um, uh, how do, how should I say? Like people were, had very strong opinions about musical tastes, you know, and, and being very critical of that. And I think that had a lot to do with, I don't know, this, this aspect of like, you can just anonymously comment on, on posts or on newspapers. And so I really actually try hard not to read those. Of course. <laughs> they never feel good, but they're never well-informed. And it's always someone's impulsive, emotional reaction to something that doesn't have enough information and is not considering all the facts. So Fair that, was, that was it. So I was like, okay, you know what? I don't need to read the comments of things. <laughs> so actually, I kind of don't anymore to anything that I post. It's just like, good I post it. And just send it out and then i'm like okay bye yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> good for you that's i that takes a lot of willpower <laughs> yeah yeah i think so i think so but i'm just like you know for my mental health and my sanity i'm like let's not read the comments yeah fair enough well we'd love to hear a little bit more about starting your own opera company and taking that big leap with amplified opera i know that was in the last few years that started picking up with you and your colleagues and a little bit I would love to a little bit I can't speak I would love to know a little bit more about how you went about starting your own company of course yeah Amplified Opera uh, started as a conversation actually between Aria Umezawa who I mentioned before and myself um, and she actually got the name and that kind of idea from another colleague of hers um, and we had been talking, maybe this was, this was gotta be like 2016 or 2017, probably 2017 summer. Um, Aria was doing her Adler fellowship at the San Francisco opera, um, in directing at the time. And I think was back in town to, to visit family. And I remember we were having ice cream, uh, in Trinity Bellows park. And I was just, again, expressing to her, like my frustration with, the industry and auditioning and what do I do? What do I wear? How do I present myself? What should I sing? Like, what is your opinion? I want your feedback, you know, because she had has, was gaining this experience, like in, in one of the largest producers of opera in North America. And she told me some really great advice that was really clear. And she said, basically, I'm, I'm going to summarize very poorly right now. But she said, well, you're not really getting any work by, you know, trying to, like, be that feminine soprano, that quote unquote, 
whitewashed hetero feminine soprano. So why not just be who you are and dress how you want to dress, sing what you want to sing, and then whatever gigs you get, you get those gigs. I was like, you know what? That's really good. That's really good advice. I should just do that. <laughs> and so it also it also gave me more um, energy to keep working on this project that I had just uh, started through the Emerging Creators Unit at Buddies in Bad Times Theater. And this was the first iteration of The Queen and Me, um, my first show that uh, will now be will now have its world premiere at the Canadian Opera Theater. <laughs> Yeah, um, in June with uh, other co-producers, Amplified Opera, Nightwood Theatre, and Theatre Gargantua. So it's it's been a, a work of love for the past five years, for sure. And so there was a grant that I needed to apply for, and, and we needed a collective. And so we decided to just make Amplified Opera a thing. And then I won the grant. And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is something. You know, maybe the councils are starting to see that these kinds of projects and equity-seeking artists have something to say. And so then we decided to put on our concert series, Amplify, for the first time in 2019. And uh, we had a sold-out run for, for most of the performances and really great feedback from our colleagues, but also audience members who hadn't really seen opera um, because they really felt like we were speaking to them as people and connecting to them and to their identities. Um, each concert uh, featured artists that were able to reflect on their identity and their connected affinities and do it through music. And so one of those featured um, the experience of blindness and vision loss. Another one was talking about the differences between the US and Canadian border and the African diaspora and that identity. And the other one was another iteration, a workshop presentation of The Queen and Me. So talking a lot about gender and gender roles in opera. And so from there, we uh, got to know Asita Tenekun and Marion Newman. And we decided, hey, I think this might be a really special combination of these four artists coming together and so they came on also as co-founders in February 2020 and then COVID and so then we have been meeting online every single week sometimes twice a week working to create these like pillars these foundations of what Amplified Opera is and through that we created our holding space holding space series for IBPOC uh, artists in Canada and also now we're producing our second iteration of Amplify, Amplify 1.0 um, that will be presented next week March 17, 19 and 20 at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto and then also this is also part of our residency as disruptors and residents at the Canadian Opera Company and then also now Queen and Me will be coming up in June among other projects that we're working on with the Canadian Opera Company. Yeah. That is so cool. Wow. Thank you. I, that's, I, I, I knew a little bit about the Amplify series because I heard about it from some friends, but um, you should send us details of how we can get tickets because I would love to go. <laughs> you got it. Well, right now go to amplifiedopera.com backslash amplify and all the info is there, but I can totally send, I'll send you an email with all the info after. Yeah. 
we'll put it in the description. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it, this, this podcast might not come out at a time. I know, I no, it won't. That, but Queen and Me for sure will fit. Queen yeah. and Me people will get tickets for because that's in June. This will be long before June. Um, <laughs> which we also, also. get our tickets to that. <clears throat> Agreed. <laughs> but you should have seen when you said that uh the dates for for amplify i literally i i don't know if hannah you saw but i looked at you on the screen and i was like no i did too <laughs> we literally have already planned to go see two things this month so it's going to be a crazy march and we haven't Great. even gotten like our coc uh traviata and butterfly tickets yet not yet no oh you mean flute magic flute flute not yes. butterfly. yes Yes, that is what I mean. Thank you. <laughs> We're like, take fun. it, take it what we can. We've had like two years of not being able to see anything. We'll see it all now. Oh. Yep. See it all. Because who knows what the future will hold. <laughs> yeah, literally. Seriously. Um, kind of going back to what you were saying about the queen and me. So this was a project that I saw fairly early. I don't know if it was the first run. I don't even remember what year it was, but it was in a black box theater. I don't know if you know. And you Probably, it. Was it, were the lights really bright? Like, was it a daytime thing or was it a nighttime with a little bit of production value? Um, I think it was at night and it was um, two parts. It was The Queen and Me and then another um, kind of long monologue as well. Yeah, so you saw uh, the first presentation of it at Buddies in Bad Times Theater at the Rhubarb Festival. Yeah, so you saw my colleague's show that she was creating, Sofia Rodriguez. Sofia Rodriguez. I can't speak today as well. I don't know what's wrong. Anyway, and uh, yeah, then my show. Cool. That was five years ago. Can you believe it? No. <laughs> but I actually saw it because um, my friend Kayla Paquette uh, was in town in Toronto and was like oh like she was with her mother I was with mine was like oh do you want to come see Taya in this show and I was like yeah I don't know what any of this is but sure and then I go and I was like whoa I was completely it was very very cool very powerful awesome. <laughs> and then fast forward however many years now I'm like oh I'm also non-binary also singing that song blah, blah, blah. all these things crazy how it all <laughs> comes way full circle um but can you kind of actually dive into um, why you started producing The Queen and Me and what, what sparked interest in diving into that character and kind of dissecting your experience in it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so that was the role, the character that I had been playing the most in my career at the time. And, you know, I was told in my edu education years and even you know, emerging artist years, like, if you can sing Queen, Queen of the Night really, really well, you can make a lot of money and just, you know, do that in Europe and then figure out, you know, how you're going to break into the other roles, that kind of thing. So, you know, I took that advice and, and I, I went for it. I always put or sometimes on the on my audition list but um yeah it became something like kind of my calling card in a way but every time i did the show even in kind of like a you know 
a very high production value of a, of a student production or a student, a, sorry, pardon me, a school tour in a professional setting or a professional company, whether it was in North America or in Europe or in a concert setting. Um, I always just felt like the queen was dismissed and just has been written off as this like evil, ambitious mother character that just wants revenge. Simple, like one dimensional, you know, and there was no room to keep exploring who this character was, is. And because I was trained to have a lot of curiosity about the characters I was playing, right? And to always understand their backstory, always be motivated by um, subtext and like what is going on for that character. That I be I just began to get more and more frustrated by being dismissed with with this um, with playing this role. So I started just kind of imagining who this person would be off stage. Like where does she go? What is she like? You know, how does she interact with Papageno or the other ladies or other people? Like what actually happened to her late husband? You know, why is this family unit between her and Pamina and um, and the tension between her late husband and Sarastro like broken? And we also never really hear that context because the dialogue between Pamina and the König in der Nacht is often cut down to like three lines, you know, or sometimes just and then kind word or whatever and then it's like you're off to the races for Dehlerache. so for me it was just interesting to yeah to explore that and and but what was actually deeper and underneath that was using this character to advocate for not only the character herself but other characters like her in the canon and then also stemming off from that sopranos who are pigeonholed in their fach and then from that opera singers who have who are pressured to perform this white cis heteronormativity on the stage and off the stage let's be real you know in the industry and also in the educational institution it's perpetuated all the way down and then ultimately advocating for me someone who is uh, racialized and now trans non-binary at the time, I was just identifying as queer and genderqueer, um, you know, and this, all of these like, quote unquote, other, other sopranos, other women, or just otherness. And so that became very uh, liberating for me and also just creative and fun to create a show where I could sing all the other repertoire that I wasn't being hired for, that I love to sing. Um, and talk about it in a in a fun theatrical way as well, as opposed to, I don't know, writing an editorial piece, which are powerful, but it's just not my cup of tea to express myself in that in that regard. So, yeah, and I was also going through like a, a vocal growth as well. Like my fach was changing, and I was changing teachers and technique at the time as well. So. I kind of wanted to show off like other things I was working on, you know, and not really being known for that. I was always known as the coloratura soprano and coloratura is hard. <laughs> and, you know, I like singing lyrical things. I like creating other colors with my voice. I'm not just a coloratura singer. So, yeah.
that's fair. I can also attest color tour is hard from a person that doesn't do it. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. Yeah. Hey, I'm liking it a lot right now. Like, things might change. We don't know. Yeah. Nate, if it if it works for you, if you enjoy it, if it's easy, like go go for it. Like yeah. follow follow the path of least resistance in that way. Like that is for a vocal, like a, a vocal path. Like that's that's smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's super inspiring too, because not only it feels very much like you're one of the only people that I know in our realm. So like the millennial Gen Z-ish um, person that is doing this kind of thing. And to be honest with you, I haven't really seen this kind of aspect be looked at until now and rightly so. And I think it's super inspiring to see that you're doing this, not only challenging the gender norms and the norms of a of a character that's been played for hundreds of years, but also experimenting with your fuck and taking the time to be brave enough to be like, cool, I'm going to go sing some dramatic rep right now for just for fun. Like, who cares? Right. And I think that's not that's not experimented enough with. And that's something. Mm -hmm that I wish I could have told myself like even two, three years ago. I'd be like, mm. no, it's okay that you're singing that color to our piece, even though you're a full lyric. Like that doesn't, that doesn't matter. It doesn't, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like I feel like experimentation, this idea of play and playfulness within the education, the education setting, even in the industry, like mm. it doesn't, there isn't much room for that we don't create space for that enough mm -hmm. and it's too bad because i feel like it it does squash our creativity yeah especially as singers as performers as interpreters of this canon and it limits us to making us believe that it's like all we do is interpret the old stuff exactly or we are the vessels of these new works or these these uh of these new composers but really there is so much um, intelligence and creativity and empathy within each of us as performers. I think that's that's what's so special about opera singers and performers that there is so much um, openness to that and um, awareness of all these different components of the canon of how things feel in the voice, in the body, mm -hmm. of our contemporary social environment, like all of these different things that we can we, we have that firsthand knowledge to bring to productions, to bring to new works. And yeah. we are this like untapped resource that, exactly. that the industry really doesn't realize like they could be, my, oh, I don't want to use this word, mining us. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's such a, oh, it's such a, sorry. It's a, that's a poor choice of word, but they really could be utilizing us. There we go. They really could be utilizing us more and maybe just creating a different space, more space, other spaces. So yeah. this, this experimentation and playfulness can be cultivated and become part of like standard training and, and standard skill sets. Yeah. It's like a new marketable asset. It's like, just do it. Take the, take the leap. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. I love it. That's a great mantra. 
<laughs> you know what? And my parents always used to say to me too, it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, what's the worst that they can say? No, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> That's great advice. Yes, totally. But it's, it's so interesting too, because like they teach businesses, right? My dad's a business guy. They teach like when you, when you're starting a business and all that stuff, it's all about growth. It's all about progress. You're constantly supposed to be, you know, switching things up, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. There's, there's value in trial and error. Sometimes it's okay to fail. And I feel like in this industry, there's so much fear of just like having see someone see it one time and be like, mm, wasn't for me. Because we see that a lot with opera. Like, you know, a kid was brought to the opera when they were like seven years old and they were like, yeah, that was kind of boring. And then, you know, interest might fade away. But if they see different types of things and, and in not always the most elitist of places, for example, mm -hmm. in a black box theater, things like that, there, there can be so much more exploration with it as well. Oh, totally. And I, to speak to what you were saying, like about failure, like we can learn so much from quote unquote failure or failings, you know, that's where the information is. That's what helps growth happen and seeing new pathways forward, you know, um, just this idea of like always trying to like make something a success or make a show a success or going out there and doing a competition or an audition and the point is to win, right? Or to win that gig or to get that gig. But there's so much to be learned by quote unquote failings. So yeah, this is great. I'm so impressed that you're already thinking of these, these, um, these concepts, you know, at, at your ages. So that's great. Many discussions, many. <laughs> it's mostly like, okay, what do I do next? I think a lot of people in our shoes are having these conversations now and I think it's being talked about more in institutions maybe not in the in the um professors and instructors and things like that maybe but I'm I'm seeing a lot more discussion from the students even before I graduated these were conversations we were starting mm -hmm. to have so I think I I think someone said like what is it like Gen Z is going to be the no bullshit generation kind of thing I think so where they're, you just, like, they're not going to take the old ways, for example, anymore. Like, that's not an excuse. Like, that's the way it's always been. That's no longer an excuse. So they're just going to push for the change in the growth. But I just thought it was funny because calling a generation the no bullshit generation is like, okay, you know, kind of feel good about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a Gen Z. I'm not. So it's, I'll just go. It's okay. fine. <laughs> Gen Z and millennials, we can we can band together. Well, I don't know. I'm a geriatric millennial, apparently. That's yeah, my... the early one, right? Like early oh, yeah. '90s. No, I was born in the '80s. Okay, okay, <laughs> love that, love yeah. that. Yeah, but yeah, like uh, I think we're the sensitive generation or something. I'm not really sure. I haven't read up on my my generation characteristics very much but i love that gen z is being called the no bullshit generation because that's what i really want to be inside but like you know when you've been beaten down for a few decades already it's it's scary right so i'm inspired by you gen zers young millennials 
<laughs> and we're inspired by you because yeah. if, if I don't know uh, if it is called the sensitive generation or whatever I don't know if that's what it actually is to be honest I didn't do the research <laughs> um but but um I think as of late there's been a lot more sensitivity which I think mm. is positive because people are noting when something is inappropriate yep yes and I so. think we've seen especially in the last two years since covid start a lot of progress has been made because of that sensitivity cool yeah i agree so, i agree good for you guys for voicing it yes gotta start somewhere <laughs> i would love to know so fill me in where the butterfly project kind of merges with this so i know it's kind of close to starting the disruptor in residence at coc but how did how did these mingle together in your experience? What's going on there? It actually this idea started a while back. Mm -hmm. um, so I got an audition for a butterfly, my first butterfly with the Windsor Symphony Orchestra. Um, and that was back in, oh, in like late 2018. That was when you met Carmen Specht, right? Yeah, so we we performed in January 2020. Yeah, and Carmen was the Suzuki on the project. Um, and I never, first of all, I never thought I would ever sing Butterfly. Like, so this was like a, a, a learning, a growing growing moment for me for my voice at the time, singing, um, singing this aria. And then I got the audition and I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna learn the role, you know? And- Was it your first Puccini? Uh, like I, I had sung some, no, I've sung Musetta. I sang okay. Musetta in university. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't my first Puccini. Um, and I, and I love Puccini, like glorious melodies, beautiful harmonies, like heartbreaking stories. Like it's opera, you know, that is, that is opera, Italian opera. It's beautiful. Well, at least like, you know, one, one style, there's many <laughs> gorgeous Italian styles of opera anyway. Um, and because it featured, you know, a, a story of about a Japanese geisha, um, I was curious because I have Japanese heritage as well, but I really knew nothing about the opera. I, I'd maybe only seen it like once or twice in my life. Um, but I knew that there, I had heard that there were some Japanese songs that were used in it. And I wanted to do some more research. so. As I was studying the score and going through it and realizing, oh, that's not the Japanese word, that's completely wrong, or like, that's really racist, or that's really misogynistic, or what is this, you know, kind of grappling with like, these feelings that started to arise in me. Um, I started to do more investigation about the Japanese melodies and I came across some really great research out there of many scholars who have who have written about this opera specifically. And it just led me down this path to really want to hear these Japanese melodies and sing them and understand like the actual lyrics and stories of those songs and like the original context that they were um, composed in and, and how they're still performed in their original contexts today. Like, so, Puccini uses um, the Japanese national anthem in there like inappropriately. He is using not only folk songs, but also like 
um, classical Japanese music like Nagauta. And so these traditions are still taught and performed today um, in Japan at very, very high levels and they have very, um, you know, intricate and, and how should I say this? They have very, they have very intricate ways of, of being taught this and performing this as well. So like, and I also just found it very odd that these songs were so pulled out of context, especially, especially the last one where, um, you know, Butterfly is, has, you know, uh, killed herself and that theme that is very bold and loud and, and not oppressive, but it's just all encompassing at the very end of the opera. And so that, that folk song or that quotation really inspired me to start my production or to, to sorry, to start my project, the butterfly project and to kind of have an internal conversation with the ghost of Chocho-san. That's what I was doing in my mind and in my heart um, and wanting to connect back to her and understand who, who she would have been in, you know, 1905 or 1895 in Japan, in this Meiji era Japan, when they, the emperor at the time had opened finally to the West and was very rapidly westernizing, you know, so they were sending um, people from Japan out to get educated and to come back and to bring knowledge back, but they were also bringing in Europeans as well to um, to teach and to train many different people in all different fields, and music was one of them as well. And so that's that was kind of my my starting point, and um, also my desire to start to compose and to bring out you know different melodies and different sounds. That was a really fun fun way for me to kind of like experiment with electronics as well. And so this is kind of an iterative iterative project in that it's evolving and I I don't know if it'll ever be done because I'd love to you know play play around with like other instrumentalists who play shamisen who play koto and all these Japanese instruments that that are used to to perform these songs in more original contexts so and then I also um, met someone who who wrote a new libretto in Japanese and in English and put on the butterfly, I think it was back in 2017, it was Pacific Opera Project and Opera in the Heights, this co-production. And that was so cool to like, you know, hear Japanese being sung by a Japanese character, even though it's an Italian opera, you know, in a North American context, but yeah, just to kind of bring that language and elevate that language to the forefront was, was really powerful for me to be able to kind of grapple with all of this appropriation in the last 115 plus years, you know, that has been going on uh, with this opera and how we've performed it over time. So I'm guess I'm getting that the project is basically to make Butterfly into an opera that's a little more appropriate and performed like Ethically, essentially. Well, I I wouldn't call it an opera per se, like what I'm doing. I feel like yeah. I'm seeing excerpts from the show for sure. But 
reimagining them. So okay, either right. Japanese lyrics with electronics, singing with old records. You know, I, I've even, um, the video that I created uh, that was released in February, the credits actually feature uh, Tamaki Miura, and she was the first Japanese soprano to sing Madama Butterfly. Mm -hmm. And even Puccini heard her, she sang it in Europe. And, you know, he, I think, um, it's been recorded that he wrote, you know, finally, I have my Chocho-san, something to that effect, you know, and he was very happy that he could realize his dream of mm -hmm. what he thought this story was about this geisha and this American yeah. naval officer. So yeah, for me, it's, it's really about, I think, the Japanese songs and melodies and playing around with like my contemporary 2022 lens and also looking at like how we exotify women, you know, mm -hmm. especially Japanese, Asian women in this context, but how we exotify them and um, how should I say this? How we perpetuate this stereotype that women are going to play this role in in the context of men and heteronormativity as well mm -hmm. you know this performative role so me being trans and non-binary and having experience of womanhood you know being afab being assigned female at birth and living closeted and not knowing i was closeted for many years and living cisgendered and not knowing that i was trans actually like so all of that is kind of informing every time I inhabit these words or these melodies as well, you know, um, and not not reclaiming them, but just I think maybe stretching the confines of cisgendered womanhood, especially in this exotified context. I feel like I'm pushing back against that and expanding the boundaries and, and saying, commenting on that in a very um, subtext filled way, I think. <laughs> I hope that's what sort of gets across, at least because it's coming through my body. But mm -hmm. maybe not at first glance, people are um, recognizing that. What I well, I'm excited for it. <laughs> I um, What I think is so wonderful about about it is now you are providing more resources for informed performance. Yes. So like I, I caught some of um, the discussion that um, was on YouTube. I will link it below for listeners and viewers. Um, and you are now providing a resource that people from all over the world, because it is, it is publicly accessible, can use to study and, and put forth into their performances as well and how it's produced and put on can be far more informed and more respectful for that reason. And that's exciting to me because having projects like these and making them so public, not hiding them in um, institutions, is that's how I think of it because a lot of the time we think of all of these scholarly projects that are going on but, but then they have to like go through all of this publishing and editing and all of these things which is very useful 
but you've created a piece of art that is also informative for for the original piece as well and i think because it's so accessible it really allows all over the world more more informative productions did i repeat myself like three times in that sentence absolutely i apologize that's a thing i do i'm a gemini but um yeah it was just very exciting you also do i'm a gemini <laughs> i knew it i friggin knew it kind of backtracking um for a second so um like you said you're trans non-binary mm. and um i'm also non-binary and so um before we get into talking about top surgery and being opera singer and all that kind of stuff can you kind of talk a little bit about what it's like to be non-binary in this field and like were there any fears about coming out fears about being misgendered anything along those lines uh... I think I'm so past the fears because the reality is, is that people don't get it. <laughs> they still don't get it. I get misgendered all the time in the industry, um, in, in just regular old life, you know, as well, everyday life. Um, I think because I was a professional, like my professional career started when I was like 22, 21, 22, and people knew me as a soprano and with she, her pronouns and as cisgendered and as even hetero back then too. So like coming out as gay, like as queer in my mid twenties was a big thing. I think it was a bigger thing for me because it was the first, um, the first thing I really did to, to honor my truth, you know, in a very patriarchal institution that we're all kind of in, you know, and opera is like definitely magnified, magnified, magnifies the patriarchy at least I feel um and so I think that was that was huge for me and then it was also reclaiming and accepting my Japanese heritage because I pushed that away for so long as well too and just tried to whitewash myself and like anglicize my name and just laugh off all of these racist jokes that you know people would say and do and things like that, or and he's also like very microaggressive things as well. Um, and then as I got into theater more, so these past five, six years, um, and just opening up my not only my um, professional community or professional network, but just my artistic network and thinking about the world with different critical lenses, you know, and learning more about post-colonial theory, critical, critical race theory, gender theory, all these, all of these kinds of things. Um, and, and meeting folks of who are younger than me, who are older than me, and like not just kind of um, staying in this tight knit uh, circle of opera singers around my age, you know, and meeting a people of different races of different abilities. Um, I, I started to learn about gender and about what and and learned language actually that addressed so many things that I couldn't explain or didn't understand but like felt super deeply that didn't have words yet and so it was only more recently I would say in the last like two years is when I've really decided to outwardly express and verbalize my identity but i've been feeling it for so long and i didn't know what that was and yeah I, people just don't get it because they see my face they see my body 
um, they hear my voice, you know, um, and they make assumptions right away. Like we're just, we're, our society is ingrained like that to make very binary distinctions, put things in boxes, categorize, okay, yep, good. I know my surroundings, that kind of thing. That's just how we're trained. So, yeah, I think just kind of going off of like what you were saying in my own experience, I guess, um, like I have a lot of fears being not so much the gay thing, but the non-binary thing, especially going into perhaps Europe for a time of my life, like over there, they like really don't get it. And we think here is like, they don't get it, but really don't get it there. And I think like, like obviously, you know, being misgendered just kind of sucks in general. Like it just doesn't feel nice, but also like kind of a fear of rejection that goes along with it too. It's like, like seeing my pronouns next to my name and being like, I don't even want to have to deal with that whole fiasco. So I'm not going to hire this person kind of thing. Um, but kind of, um, going a little bit deeper into this. So can, um, uh, you, you recently got top surgery, if you're okay talking about that openly, um, which is so cool. Congratulations. Um, I was wondering, um, even prior to it happening, what kind of led to it and did um, singing or um, how you're perceived um, have any effect on your decision? Yeah, I think so. I think there was definitely... Um... There was definitely desire to want to be perceived differently. And I, f I feel like it's a combination and it's really hard to uncouple the external perception of me and what that makes me feel like. And then the internal desire and expression of like my authenticity. And so it's hard to kind of separate the two because they affect the two constantly, right? They're always informing the other. And so it just became almost like, like urgent. It was like, I needed, I just decided to call my family doctor and be like, I want to talk about this. You know, it wasn't like something I could slowly and methodically like think about in, in a in a very um yeah methodical kind of like progression of like oh yes I'm considering this you know what I mean it was it was kind of urgent and almost like not primal but very like I don't know like inner like these places where you don't have words where it's really hard to intellectualize or verbalize like in, in, in any kind of coherent way it's just like when you know something is right or when you know something is wrong or unsafe you can feel that it's like instinctual that's the word instinctual and so I think because I had been um, not listening to my instincts for so long and then slowly these past five or six years starting to attune to that to that inner beacon or those you know, listening to your guts or listening to your instincts, whatever that that might be, that I was able to hear kind of that urge or that call more clearly. Um, and, you know, I thought, okay, professionally, if if I cut off my tits, like, whatever, they can just put a prosthetic over if they want to, right? 
if they want to have me have a, a bigger bosom. Like when I, when I had boobs and I was doing this gig in Europe, like I wore this costume and I had like, I don't know, I don't know the sizing, but like, it was like half a foot off my chest. And then they would like paint in the cleavage as well. But the costume was like out to here. So I'm like, of course they can create something if, if, if I were ever to play a role like that, or even if it's something minimal, you know? And, but for me to be able to inhabit every day in my body um, was becoming more and more urgent for me to just feel my body like, oh yes, this is, this is how I want to feel, you know? Um, and it's also like, not like I hate, I hated my chest. It just wasn't me. And I realized that, um, you know, this, this was a, this was, this was a viable option for me as well, but also that I could thank my body and my experience in womanhood, in girlhood, to be able to get to the point where I am now to be, to be who I am, because all of those experiences have shaped who I am now, you know, like all of the good ones, all of the traumatic ones, all of the whatever mediocre ones those experiences like make me who i am today um and so i'm thankful for that but this is as i as i keep living as i keep iterating you know as taya taya the project keeps iterating you know this is just another i think uh evolute like revolve in my evolution of being who i am and being able to express my truth and my truth right now, you know, and maybe that will change in five years. Maybe that will change in 20 years, you know, but right now this just feels right for me. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to hear it too, because I know of people and my friends who are experiencing similar things. And it's like to have that, that person yourself in this instance, talk openly and freely about something that in the past has been seen as faux pas in this industry is super, super inspiring. And not only just for someone who may be feeling the same exact way, but someone who is ready to see the industry change. And like, these should be normal conversations. Like there's so much makeup prosthetics. Like I've seen like you, like drag queens and stuff have these great, like these great like chest things I they're fantastic so why not just get them off (laughs) who cares totally totally (laughs) right like it just made me realize like I need to be happy like Taya needs to be happy and not Mm -hmm. this external perception of Taya from the professional industry of like what that could make me as like more marketable or something you know like I needed to let go of that and honor myself yeah my gears are turning. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, "Oh, Hannah knows." I've been I've been thinking about it. We're not sure, but actually, another question that I had um, would be: so um, I know it's it's still like fairly fresh, but did you find that there was any changes coming back from recovery uh, to your voice, whether that be like? It could be like lung capacity because I know the bandages are quite tight for about a week and things like that. Oh yeah. Like you have to wear a bandage for three weeks for sure. Like 23 hours of the day as much as possible. I didn't, I didn't, 
I didn't sing for the first three weeks for sure. And, you know, I was kind of hunched and had a little Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, you know, for the first week. And, um, but I think because I had, I have had good training and I've always been really expanding my rib cage and using my diaphragm in a way that that muscle memory was right there. So just being able to, to get back into it. Yeah. I guess butterfly project was the first thing I did after top surgery. So, um, like the, the video recording in November. Um, so it was definitely freeing, you know, just to like, not feel like there's a sports bra or a binder or a bandage digging into me while I'm singing. Um, but I also like, even before when I was binding, I had various sizes of binders so I could wear something that was a little bit looser when I was singing, but still feel, you know, okay in my body in a, in a public sense when people were looking at me, but to, as to not to, um, compromise my singing and hurt myself and like crush my rib cage. <laughs> so yeah, I think because because you know I've been singing opera since I was 15 like I've learned how to use those intercostal muscles well to push against and use that diaphragm to always push against a binder because I remember actually training with kind of a uh like a back support brace thing with like velcro to improve my intercostal muscles and diaphragmatic action when I was like a teenager actually that was a tip that one of my teachers at the time said grab this back support and practice singing and pushing into it. And you could adjust the tension on it as well. Um, yeah. So I think I've just always like had that muscle memory in me. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to put on my binder for tomorrow's practice session. Good. To giving know. me, giving me great ideas. I know. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe like buy a couple, buy a couple different sizes, right? Like buy a size up. So then it's like not too tight. Right. And experiment with that. If, um, and I'm not just asking this for myself, but um, <laughs> if, if you were, if you were to give advice to people who, um, trans non-binary or not, who are looking to make body alterations to help them fit themselves better, who are in this industry and maybe worried about the effects on their body, what would you tell them? Definitely seek medical advice. Like I am not a doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, talk to, talk to, talk to trusted medical professionals, you know, if that's your physician, or if you don't feel comfortable going to your GP, like see if you can get a referral. Um, I had a really great nurse practitioner who was helping me through this process. Um, a therapist, a psychotherapist as well, like talking about this process, because it's not only like a physical transformation, it is a huge transformation in like how you will feel about yourself and how people will perceive you. So it's, it's a whole, it's a social transformation as well, too. Um, it's an emotional transformation. Um, and, and just to know, just to really read the literature, you know, and also check out, do, do your Google searching. Like, don't just look at the, like at the, um, the very like medical, dry scientific stuff because I think trans folks non-binary folks who have gone through this process who are going through this process like they are your they're your 
best resource for learning, um, you know, what works, what doesn't work, some tips here, some tips there, like the community knows a lot and there's, there's history there. So just start talking to people, you know, see if you can make friends, make some connections, reach out to people, like generally even strangers, like people on Instagram, they will respond because they want to help. You know, they found community through different channels like this. And, you know, I've even talked to a bunch of different trans folks I've never met in my life, just from like random places in, in Canada who have reached out. Um, and so it's just nice to help them and share the resources and share the information because it is very, it is very scientific, like the literature that you're going to get from either your doctor or other clinics or the hospitals or et cetera, et cetera. And thank you for sharing too, because I know, and the reason I'm like such a big fan and all of these things, the singing is pretty freaking fantastic. Let's just say that. But it's also that you have, um, from when I first came across you five years ago, I suppose it was now, um, you watching your career grow and all of these things, you have actually become my representation and friends of mine's representation, because every time I know a trans or non-binary opera singer, I'm like, you need to know who Taya Kasahara is, because they're like the coolest person ever. And like, like you're so open to talk about these things and you're reachable and talented and you do all of these amazing projects. So thank you for being my representation, because I'm not sure if you had any of your own. Oh, thanks. Nope, I didn't. But you know what? It's really nice to also feel like I'm in a community that supports me you know like even my cis hetero white community like in the theater and opera world like to feel seen to feel supported and to feel uplifted like that's important too but also I'm also starting to recognize more non-binary more trans more racialized and queer folks that I'm like yes like let's let's know each other and let's uplift each other and support each other because I'd rather do this career and this art form in a collaborative way than in a, than in a competitive way. And that's what I was taught was to, was to compete, you know, and it's not fun. It's not fun to lose and it's not fun to be on the top and everyone else is down there and sad and bitter or whatever, you know, I'd rather do this as a team and yeah, and make it all of our wins, you know, and I don't know, maybe it's because I played too much soccer as a kid that it's like, it's a team effort, you know, but um, it just feels more fun to celebrate success with people than by yourself. It's true. And I think Hannah and I talk about this a lot because we're both sopranos, even though we have very different voices. And especially there's like, you know, probably just as well, the whole soprano myth, right? We're like all competitive and we're all kind of bitches and all of There were two, no two sopranos in the same room. <laughs> yeah, like they can't be in a production together because God forbid, right? And it's, and it's, um, I mean, for some it's true, but it's the same for all voice types. Like there are some, you know, bitchy baritones out there too, whatever. But, um, it, it, like you were saying, it is just so much more fulfilling to be collaborating with people because that's when the good art comes to. Yeah. Yeah. Making music together. Yeah. 
it's so interesting being outside of university too. So like I have my close knit circle, like all my roommates last year were all sopranos. So we're super tight, but any other singer, soprano, mezzo soprano that I'm with is kind of like, it feels a little strange and it's nice being outside of school. Cause you're like, Oh, you're actually a real human being. Cool. Okay, good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Like, I'm I'm trying to reflect, like, am I friends with any Sopranos from back in the day? And oh yeah, one of my best friends, COC Ensemble Studio, 2007. We were pitted against each other because we were double casted for everything. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we couldn't be friends. And we weren't until we bonded over, you know, we were on a production where we played, oh, it was Rusalka and I was first Woods Bright, she was second Woods Bright, and then there was another playing third Woods Bright. And so we finally just got to know each other, you know, and even though we have very different voices and we still do have very different voices, but we were singing the same repertoire, um, you're always competing, right? Every situation. So, and, you know, she was the like, quote unquote, maid of honor at my wedding and still like consider her one of my best friends of all time, you know? So I don't know. You could be friends with Sopranos. You could be friends with your same voice type. <laughs> we make it work pretty well. We make it work pretty well. We do. But maybe it's because you're a Virgo and I'm a Gemini. Who knows? It's probably more that. There's, there's, yeah. a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> my friend's a Gemini too. The other one, the Soprano. Okay. <laughs> I get along with Geminis so well. It's a thing, you know, Geminis and Geminis. Yep. I I, I always like to say it's because I love myself so much that I like to be friends with the Geminis, but who's to say? (laughs) Um, Awesome. Uh, Hannah, did you want to take the last question, the big one? We do. I love this question. Um, We always end off, before our rapid fire, of course, but we always end off with, what is your why? Why do you get up each day and do what you do and work yourself to death (laughs) what is your why (laughs) oh yeah you know I could have gone into a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and made a lot of money (laughs) you know but I didn't and I still think about that sometimes I'm like do I want, you know, could I go into this and have a six figure income stable, you know, the nine to five working, whatever, 48 weeks out of the year, getting a couple weeks off for holidays only like, I just, I just can't like, I think about that life. And I'm like, that's not me. I, I can't do that. I feel like there's just so much in this world to experience and to learn and to understand and I feel really blessed to be able to do it through music um, and to do it through my body as the instrument the the literal instrument in many ways now Um, and I don't know this is this is a hard question I haven't really like pontificated so much about the why, you know, and even though I was, um, what's the word, encouraged to write like an artist statement or an artist philosophy when I was, when I was really young, like 15 years ago, um, 
by a, by a great director at the time. And I think it's because I can, I can see my humanity in others in these spaces, making this music, bringing such beauty to life in, in a moment and then it's gone. And then to be able to work in a way that keeps chasing that and, and wanting to bring it back, you know, because when we hear music and where we, when we sing something, it's there and then it's gone, right? Like that moment can never be repeated. Um, and I think that's what's really special as well. Like it, it really, I think, gives me it gives me the space to be able to reflect on how precious life is, how precious relationships are, how precious our earth is, and how how important it is to to listen like i'm even thinking about like listening in a musical context like as a as a fellow musician but also just listening to people and understanding their who they are and where they're coming from and you know that we're all here just to try like trying in life and trying to figure it out so i feel like i feel like for me it's very interconnected why why i do music why i create why i produce and and want to create space for others because i wasn't given those opportunities i didn't have representation i didn't even know that i wanted that or deserved that or needed that i feel like there were a lot of uh a lot of just not knowing when i was a kid when i was a teenager when i was a young artist and now that I know, I can't unknow. So I want to make things better, not only for myself, but for others, so we can all, so we can all just be able to revel in, in, in the beauty of life as well. And music just happens to be the way that I do it. Um, Maybe that's something. <laughs> oh, that's a great answer. That was pretty good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I also, this is such a side note, but you have great words. Like your vocabulary is so intelligent. Yeah. Pontificate was a good one. That, oh my God, I almost hit the floor. It was so good. I was, I was searching for that one. I was like, come on, brain. You've been on Zoom <laughs> since 8.30 this morning. You can do it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, let's, let's, try to, let's try to come to an end. Let's, kind of, let's try to... Break down. Um, do you You're have very some extra kind. time for um, a few rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Hannah, you start us off. I have it in my mug. Ooh, it's like. Okay. 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 Wait, Describe so yourself. Start. Should these also be short words too? Like short answers? Sure. Yeah. Whatever works. Okay. Whatever works. If it needs to be long, that's fine. I'll choose a new one. I won't go. I'll do a different one and then that'll be a surprise later. Okay, I'm ready. Sorry to interrupt. What's your favorite city? Oh my God. Oh, I don't know. Tokyo was pretty amazing. I was there for the first time 
four years ago, but I'm sure there's so many other amazing cities. Prague is also amazing. Berlin. Oh my God, there's so many. I wish. San Francisco also too. Sorry. I need to cross these all off my list. Um, guilty pleasure or bad habit you'll never break? Oh, chocolate. Like, I don't know. Even when I'm like, no sugar, Taya. Nope, chocolate. I get it. I get it. Um, okay, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I think I'm a combivert. Like, okay. Combo. Yep. Most recent thing you've learned? The most recent thing I've learned um, is is to know that people can't read your mind or your thoughts and feelings and, and just try to be really transparent and clear and express those things, even when you're stressed, especially when you're stressed, because like you can forget to say things and then be stuck in your own world. But it's important to be extra clear. Okay. Okay. I like it. I like it. That's a good one. Okay, describe yourself in three words. Ooh. Fun. Uh, hardworking. Uh, um, I don't know. Lovable? I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> those are bad. Those, are, those aren't, I don't know. This is so bad. I didn't know what to say. For the little I know you, I would say those are pretty good ones. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, what composer would you like to speak to from any era? Oh my God, there's too many. I think Beethoven first. Really? I think that's yeah. our first Beethoven. I, I'm surprised a singer wants to talk to Beethoven. Yep. I want to like get drunk with him. Do you know what I mean? Like get to know like what? It's like, why did you ruin what going me in on theory it? class? What did you, what did you say? Yeah. Why did you ruin me in theory class? <laughs> <laughs> I love his symphonies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something there that really speaks to me. And I love Fidelio, that opera as well. Um, I don't know. That was the first one that came to mind. But there's many. There's many. That's Bellini, Strauss, Puccini. Puccini, come Puccini on. would be a good one. Yeah. Get some insider knowledge for the Butterfly Project. Yeah. Also Wagner. I'm like, I want to know what's going on in that mind. I want to know what's going on. He was you know? crazy, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's your party trick? And it's not singing. No, you can't see. No, no high ups allowed. <laughs> I wish. I, I wish that was my party trick. Damn. Uh, I think I'm the one that like kind of cleans up around people or like Love if that. someone needs something or is like can't find something I like grab it for them and be like here you go like I'm thinking in like an actual party you know like where there's yeah. drinks and food and I, I tend to be observant I think of the room because mm -hmm. I'm a little socially awkward in those situations and so I'm like making small talk and I'm like ah, but then really I'm like okay bye and I'm like here's, <laughs> here's like here's the box you were looking for I don't know or like something like that you're the party parent the party parent love oh, it man but is that like want want party parent or is that just like <laughs> you help me get home one. yeah okay everyone needs be, one what about like the party chameleon so like i feel like i i am able to do 
or I just like do multiple things or like perform multiple tasks in a way that I don't even know I'm really doing them at a party. Yeah. If you, you can always come over here and you can be the one to relax. I'll make the drinks. I, Hannah knows I like. Timmy's the party parent. I, 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 1000%. Yeah, it's good. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what is your favorite role that you've played? Oh, I guess I, I guess it would have to be uh, Leslie Uyeda's opera "When the Sun Comes Out." I played Solana, and it was like this like gender outcast dyke. It was yeah. I don't even know what pronouns Solana I guess uses, but like <laughs> to play first of all to play like a lesbian character in twenty thirteen was the was when we premiered the show was really really exciting and affirming at the time and. You know, just to perform love in that very homo way. I loved it. Like, yeah, high notes. And also, like, the role was was written for me-ish, like, in mind, you know? Like, we had many conversations about it. So um, that was also cool to, yeah. That's so cool. Well, what advice would you give your younger self? That's my last one. Trust your instincts just because someone is older or in a position of power, quote unquote, uh, you know, take things with a grain of salt, trust your instincts, listen to yourself, build, cultivate that sense of self and, you know, don't always do what you're told. <laughs> Words to live by. Seriously. Um, and last one will be, who do you fan person over? Opera singer, specific. I think right now I'm totally fanning over um, a couple of trans opera singers that I've been following a lot the, 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 during the pandemic these past two years. So Adrian Angelico mm -hmm. and Holden Madagami. Um, they're both both based in Europe. Um, I had the pleasure of getting to know Holden uh, quite well over the pandemic and Adrian, I interviewed him for um, a new project I'm working on called Little Miss Gender and the Miss has one S in brackets as well. So that's a bit like about looking at the Fox system and um, various stringent gender expectations associated with Fox. So that was really cool to talk to him. Um, and also Lucia Lucas, like, I would love to interview her or meet her or sing with her. That would be really cool, too. And just to, yeah, I feel like they're like my uh, inspiration, like trans representation out there in the in the opera industry. Mm -hmm. That's quite good. Um, Taya, thank you so much. Can you tell the listeners where they can find out more information about you? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, all my stuff's online, teyakasahara.com, and uh, you'll you'll find all about it. Find out all about it. <laughs> awesome. Links will be in the description for the listeners. Taya, thank you so much for doing this with us. We were so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, I had a great time. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. My yeah, pleasure.
I know. It scares me every time. I know, right? Yeah. She's a pushy bitch. Holy moly. 